to come in, lap after lap after lap, and what does he do? He ignores them. A committee meeting about it, stick it on and send him out. Just get it through the bus stop chicane, George, try and straight line it, get to the line and we'll see what happens. Paris tries to cut off Hamilton, oh! who loves Hamilton goes straight on. This is kind of appalling, this is the worst start for a Grand Prix that I have ever seen in the whole of my life. Hey guys, Merry Christmas. Welcome back to Unqualified. Uh, G is here. This is Graham. We are here for an Abu Dhabi race recap, only about 40 days too late. So we're gonna do it. We're gonna do a little rebrand and just call this a Christmas special. Uh, if you're worried about Gerald droning on and on about race results for 30 minutes when you can't even remember the order yourself, don't worry. We're, uh, we're going to have a slew of news topics to cover. But more importantly, we're here to do something very important tonight. And it has to do with my favorite word in the English language, Gerald. It starts with an A. Can you guess what that word is? Not a clue. Accountability. Oh, God. We, we, are, <laughs> we are here. I, I try to block that term out of my mind as, as much as possible. <laughs> we are here to be held accountable for the picks that we made at the beginning of the season for how we thought this was going to shake out. And I'm not glossing over anything. I want to take the wins and the losses head on, and I expect the same of you. What say you, Gerald? How you doing? Oh, I'm phenomenal. Love to be here. I missed you, man. It was a long time overdue, and admittedly, you know, I think subconsciously we feared that there would be no news and, and action <laughs> um, in the off season. And so we felt like we had to fill the gap somehow by delaying the episode, but, uh, turns out lots to cover off the track in, uh, post post Abu Dhabi. So excited to get into it. So everybody thought silly season was over because all the driver contracts were mostly locked up, but then silly season basically happened for management, which let's be honest, the real silly season, which, which is because we know the drivers are all the same and they don't actually dictate the outcome at all. It's all about the teams, the per- team performance. I kind of think it's more interesting at some level. Uh, But I I was reflecting on as it transpired over like the two weeks where it all kind of went haywire. I think this is the first time. I'm trying to think, is this the first time since I've been a Formula One fan that there was a true shuffling of team principles? Uh, Probably so. I think this is the first time I've ever experienced. I mean, certainly at the top, first, certainly at the top of the order, like at the top of the grid. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you saw Williams. Um, with Capito, and that was and then probably... Mike Crack at Aston Martin. Yep. So you saw a little bit in the midfield, but yeah, but it I mean, wasn't yeah, this all felt like a whole. Yeah, this felt like a wholesale rotation, and you saw sort of a domino effect um, go on more than sort of in the last few years. So where do we want to start first? I know we got all the news, but uh, maybe we maybe we dive into our uh, our preseason picks. Well, what about the race cap? Shouldn't we shouldn't we cover oh. a little bit on the race recap? <laughs> okay, so who uh remind me, who won the race? Hmm. <laughs> uh if I recall correctly, I think it was I think it was Max. Yeah, it was Max. Oh wait, yeah. who was the podium? It was Max. <laughs> <laughs> it was Max uh Charles. That's right. Ferrari held on to second place in the construction. Yep, all right, and who was third? And uh uh Checo. <laughs> there, it was Checo. <laughs> yes, there there we go. After that, let's be honest, who gives a shit? All right. 
That's a great race, race recap. Boom. Wow, we should have just been doing that all season. That would have made our lives a lot easier. <laughs> uh, yes, as you would have expected, Red Bull closed out the season strong. One and three. Leclerc still making a mark. But um, does not tell the tale of this. Well, I think the big news was um, really Leclerc holding on to second. That was the... That was the big battle remaining with Claire holding off Perez. Perez really could never quite, never quite close the gap. It, it, it looked like he had it for a few moments, but I don't know if it was him exhausting the tires. The car just didn't have the performance, but he was never, unfortunately, really, really in it. Um, so props to Leclerc for being the silver lining for the for the Ferrari team. You think Max should have backed Leclerc up? Well, I mean, I thought he was supposed to play the team game based on your based on your principles. He should have sacrificed everything for the betterment of of Checo Perez. Absolutely. I mean, he's supposed to be a good teammate, right? What, he's got nothing to lose. Okay. I I think that's a little different, but anyway, I don't know why I just opened that can of worms. We, yeah, know. we, didn't, we didn't plan for that level of hostility. At least yeah, not at this sorry, point in the episode. I, it, sorry, it's Christmas. <laughs> it's Christmas time. Let's keep let's keep this kid show. Let's keep it jolly. Yeah. All right. Um, should we move into um, your your favorite topic of accountability? Let's take uh, a look yeah, back through uh, through memory lane. If we go back to earlier this season, we laid out <laughs> my, my constructors' standings preview was a, is a bloodbath. It's not good. <laughs> it was a little rough. So let's There's a lot of just, red. <laughs> just to recap, who how the constructors' standings actually finished. Red Bull one, Ferrari two, Mercedes bringing up third, but closing the gap late in the season. Alpine midseason jumping ahead of McLaren and holding the line. Meanwhile, McLaren dropping a position into fifth after finishing fourth last season. Alfa Romeo in sixth, Aston seventh, Haas holding off Haas for eighth, AlphaTauri, and then Williams. So I'm sorry, Alpha holding off Aston, Haas holding off AlphaTauri, and Williams bringing up the caboose in 10th. So that being said, let's look back at at the predictions. Um, Overall, I correctly guessed, and let's be honest, they were entirely guesses, very minimal in form going into these predictions. I correctly predicted four constructors Meanwhile, you can sh- correctly guessed three. Mine were all at the front of the grid, so I think if we were to sort of give points as though it were a race finished, I think I'd probably finish with higher points. But in terms of the top three, I predicted correctly Red Bull, Ferrari, and Mercedes. Meanwhile, you had the prediction that Mercedes would finish in front of Ferrari largely. Why was that? I'm not ashamed of that pick at all because I think that it was very close. Like I, I got the trend line right. I guess we just ran out of races. You know, that's right. I think my, I think my reasoning was sound, which is like Ferrari got off to a fast start, maybe got lucky from an engineering standpoint with their car philosophy, and then Mercedes is always and will be for a while the better team, and so they started closing the gap and just ran out of time. You know, but they, I, I you know, anybody with two eyes could see they were they were the stronger team and arguably the stronger car for the last six races. So. Well, and I think you correctly called that they had the best driver lineup on the grid. I mean, you picked Russell and and Hamilton as tops, where I, 
I think I made a mistake with Ferrari in saying I thought they had the best overall driver lineup and I think gave Sainz a little bit too much credit, expecting greater consistency from him having beat Leclerc the year prior. And unfortunately, some of his own making and some um, luck with DNFs due to contact from other drivers and engine issues, yeah. he, he didn't quite have the, the season I predicted. You could argue, if you put Ferrari and Mercedes drivers head-to-head, you could argue that Leclerc has Hamilton's single lap pace, just not as consistent. And I don't think Sainz is the caliber of driver as George Russell. I, I think Sainz is an exceptional driver, but I George Russell's got the he's got the sauce for sure. So Well, and it's just the interesting dynamic where it seems like both Ferrari drivers are a little bit more volatile, a little bit more prone to mis- some mistakes. And that could be the the car, right? The Ferrari seemed a little bit twitchier, which you didn't really see in preseason testing as they kept it on the track, but it was a little bit more unstable. Whereas Mercedes, while not having the the high end pace, it seemed stable throughout the whole season. And so, but I think you just see this hyper consistency with both Russell and, and Hamilton. And, but I do think that was the differentiator while Russell finished third, Hamilton just, he was closing the gap late in the season and he just was, he was very pristine throughout the entire stretch where he still saw a couple of mistakes from Russell. All right, well, let's go down the grid. So that was the, that was the primary differentiator between you and I, because once you get through that, it was, it was, we, we basically missed everything else except both predicting that Aston Martin was going to finish seventh and, and you correctly predicted Williams in 10th while I thought Haas would go 10th. However, that leads us to your interesting fourth place prediction. I knew this. Oh, man. I mean, I couldn't let this slide. You want accountability. We need accountability here. This was by far the the most incorrect guess of the season. And I appreciate your enthusiasm at the start of the season, but you predicted fourth place Haas. Walk us through again your your logic, uh, knowing that they they did finish eighth on the grid. I will say Oh, yeah, they were a far cry from McLaren, so there's no way they even had a shot at. <laughs> yeah. Geez. Meanwhile, well, I predicted McLaren in fourth, so I was a little bit of the safe pick, but uh, still wrong. Uh, I, I I don't want to apologize. I I do need to rec. I, I recognize that it was stupid, and it was uh probably a misplaced uh sense of nationalism. Uh, I was just really excited that we kind of kicked the Russians. You know, we booted the Russians off of our team. You're on a high. It's okay. I was on a high. And uh, I will confess to thinking that Mick Schumacher was going to shine a little brighter this year. Well, sorry, I dropped some. Uh, I'll confess to thinking that Mick Schumacher was going to shine a little brighter this year. Um, uh, yeah, and he didn't. So, yeah, I mean, it was ridiculous. Their Their highest – their highest – their ceiling this year was probably sixth at the end of the day. That's probably the best they could have done. Had they gotten more consistency out of Mick, sure, maybe they could have clipsed a team like Alfa Romeo, maybe. But, yeah. Yeah, meanwhile, when looking at Haas, I I said at the start of the season, Magnussen was obviously a big improvement on Mazepin. So that was going to net them some points there. And that they'd have some solid performances early. I would agree with you. I think early in the season where basically in the first race, Magnuson got almost 50% of his points, right? 
if Schumacher would have delivered similar performances early, you could have seen them further up the grid, given how much weight those early performances carried. Um, And I think the drop-off was faster than I would have expected, right? While it took a long time for teams to move up the order, you saw them just drop like like a rock after the first few races, which which was surprising to me um, based on how well they they showed in preseason testing. So, yeah, they, they flamed out pretty quick. Car was kind of a one-trick pony, and it seems like most of the tricks were week one. <laughs> and it was pretty much over from there. So that's the, that's the worst kind of pony. Yeah, it's not ideal. <laughs> well, moving on to to fifth place, you and I had both predicted AlphaTari in fifth after a really God. strong season last Ugh. year. The, the strength of performances from Gasly the year before, as well as Red Bull in preseason testing, it just seemed like. I mean, being a sister team, good drivers, all they needed was improvement from Sonoda. And, and I mean, you were talking about them being able to take the fight to, to McLaren potentially. And that's ultimately what our prediction was. However, fifth place McLaren instead. Meanwhile, AlphaTauri finishing a disappointing ninth place on the season. Yeah, I'm sure you couldn't uh, be happier as a, as a, as a Gasly fan. Uh, I mean, I did. I would like, for the record, to state that I predicted at the beginning of the season that Gasly would remain a prick, and I do deserve credit for that prediction. <laughs> uh, I hate Alpha Tower a little less now since he's gone, so I don't want to just like, you know, spit on their grave. But uh, I don't really see how this year could have gone much worse for them. Um, and it, it, it. Everybody two years ago came up with their theories about the shared engineering between Red Bull and AlphaTauri and how they had similar car design philosophies and they had correlated performance year over year. I think you can basically toss that theory completely out the window at this point. <laughs> like, New obviously not true. Do you think they intentionally sandbagged AlphaTauri to, to quell those rumors of collusion? I think that christian horner is absolutely capable of that but i think he's got better shit to do so yeah um he's, he's got to figure out how to build engines that primarily thing one but honestly it's a little disappointing i mean I, I would have liked to see the the continued competitiveness at that part of the field right i mean if you could have had that sort of alpine mclaren alphatari battle because sonoda did perform better this season. I mean, he had his share of mistakes and engine failures, which kept him at the bottom of the order, but he also had plenty of like solid performances around 10th place, you know? So it seemed like he made the most of the car that turned out to be a shit box. Are they a more, are they the most boring team on the grid? Top to bottom. In, in according to what, what criteria? A combination combination of team performance and like driver personalities just general level of interest i mean i feel like when you get into the back half of the grid you could probably say that about a lot of teams i mean i would put them in there with like alpha alpha romeo as well that's, minus that's like the nude, nude botas photos i mean that's the the shining light of that's, that old team season. that's the only that's the only spice that alpha romeo has and the fact that joe guan yu almost died i mean that was you know this year like it's, but th- literally, Alphatari has got no spice. Sonoda doesn't, you know, bitches engineers on the radio anymore like it used to. They're boring. Like, they just were not a, their color scheme was kind of, meh. I don't even know their team principal's name. Like, I, <laughs> I, 
I just think they're really boring. The only thing I know about them is that they are affiliated with a fashion company, and that's you know that doesn't. I mean, at least Williams has the sort of like antithetical like Latifi dynamic, right? Yeah, and then the hair dye with Albon, yeah. Yeah, they kind of had nothing. If anything, Gasly took on the role of Sonoda, just being like the disgruntled, like angry employee on the radio. So, I mean, props to him for that, at least. And Williams would do interesting stuff from, they would just like go for broke from a strategy standpoint. Remember when they went long with uh, Albon in Australia? Like they would do stuff to kind of stir the pot. But I feel like Alpha Tower is just kind of like uh, just a piece of eight and a half by 11 white printer paper. Yeah. Like it just is like. They were pretty bland this year. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, and that paper lit on fire this season. So, wow, we were – Haas was way wrong. AlphaTauri was way wrong. We were we were four grid spots off on on our prediction in, in that one. So that one was rough. Um, meanwhile, in sixth place, Alfa Romeo finishing behind Alpine and McLaren. And both of us missed this because you had McLaren here. Uh, dropping significantly from fourth place the year prior. Meanwhile, I had Alpine in there because I thought, you know, again, after the prior season, they would finish behind a stable McLaren and a rising AlphaTauri. But um, let's let's revisit this whole McLaren topic. So you were slightly overly optimistic about McLaren and I was slightly under optimistic or slightly pessimistic. You were you were more pessimistic yeah. about McLaren than I was optimistic about them. I mean, can't candidly, I feel pretty damn validated. I think if any of the teams beneath them had a pulse, they would have been in trouble. I mean, McLaren was lost the whole season. I mean, hell, if Alpine had a pulse from a reliability standpoint, McLaren wouldn't have been on their I mean, wouldn't have even been able to see them on the table. So, I I actually think McLaren got off way easier than they than they should have. On the I mean, honestly, you're right. Like, if Alphatari would have delivered, if Haas would have delivered, they would have easily been ahead of McLaren. I mean, McLaren could have all been all the way down in seventh. If Aston Martin performed early like they did late, they could have been, you know, eighth. Aston was taking it to McLaren at the end of the year. I Yeah, I... And that's the other thing, is McLaren didn't get better either. Like, they really... I, their curve was not... Vert, was not, like, increasingly... Sloping the season. I mean, they just kind of stayed increasing. What? <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. The rate of change was negative. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it wasn't good. It was shit. Sometimes maybe good. Sometimes maybe shit. Well, and 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 the main, the main driver of your prediction, I believe, was the Daniel Ricardo narrative, and you you called the expectation that he would be in IndyCar and there would be a massive gap to Norris, which. <laughs> except for your absurd Haas take, seemed shocking at the beginning of the season. Who would have thought he made no step forward and arguably steps backward from the, the previous season? And, I mean, you called that one. So, look, I will say, I took a lot of safe bets. You took some bold bets. And I think, by and large, while you didn't hit the number exactly correct on this one, you were, you were close. And, and the drivers were, directionally, you were correct. To preseason, what would you have said was less likely? Ricardo loses his seat, goes to IndyCar. Ricardo loses his seat, becomes Red Bull test driver. Uh, Red Bull test driver. Yeah. So it's like, and I still think I'm, it's not the best move for him. Uh, well, well, let's talk about we'll talk about that in a moment. But I still think your prediction at the start of the season was a better career and sensible. brand decision 
for him, for McLaren, for everyone involved. And so uh, I think you were a better prognosticator and and potentially career manager than than Ricardo's agent. I appreciate that. Makes me feel good on the inside. Makes me feel all warm and fuzzy. It's the last uh, compliment you're going to get today. So they are in. few and far between. So I'm going to hold on to that one and probably dream about it tonight. I <laughs> I will walk some of it back though when trying to rationalize. I actually think I understand Ricardo's decision. I think I think that I do, and why he wants to stay in the game so badly. Um, but we can get into that later, unless you want to go there now foreshadowing let's let's revisit in a moment um let's bring this home all right so that was the top five bottom five we had alfa romeo aston martin haas alfatari and williams again because of our mix matching of orders you had mclaren further down at sixth meanwhile i had alpine um and look i had i had kind of alpine as a consistent spot while you had them further down the grid. So you, again, I think because of your, we already said we had Aston Martin both at seven. So you bumped Alpine all the way down to eighth place this season. I think for no better reason than your your fundamental distaste for the French, albeit you called out the silver lining of Alpine was Alonso. Um, however, I think he, if I recall correctly, he finished, it's been a while since I looked at the numbers, almost a whole month. Um, but he finished behind Ocon, if if I'm not mistaken. Is is Don't, that correct? Dude, just double click one layer below that, Gerald. <laughs> it, it's it, it, how many times did he his car blow up? Like literally, <laughs> it has absolutely nothing to do with relative driver performance. That he literally just couldn't get a car to stay underneath him. I, so I don't want to even hear that. But I would like to call out. The listeners aren't going to be able to see this in the notes, but this is memorialized in your rationale for team placement. Uh, where you put Williams finishing eighth in the Trencher standpoint, as you broke down your rationale, you said Albon makes positive impact. Well, Tifi does decent given tenure. <laughs> how are you feeling about that, Gerald? How are you feeling about propping up old Pepperoni Boy? Well, let's look at it this year. Did he did he do as poorly as you would have expected on the season? Was he like yes! was he like a championship <laughs> deciding? Uh, call well, yeah. <laughs> when the low water mark is literally deciding the championship in someone's favor because you hit the wall without anyone around you, yeah, it's a little hard to to go lower. But like, yeah, he, the didn't, guy, ruin, the he guy, didn't ruin a championship battle. I mean, I feel like guy, that's a win. He followed the wrong turn in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> In practice, it literally went down the wrong turn into the infield and then blamed it on the car. Like, I don't even do that shit on the F1 game. Like, I love how his excuse, he didn't even have a fully formed excuse. He was just like, uh, the, the car. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. I, I didn't think it could get any lower from last year. Uh, but let's be honest. I mean, I think... Basically, literally like every qualifying and every race, he was last except for people who DNF'd. So I, I might have been I might have been mistaken on that one. I don't think you might have been mistaken. <laughs> I'm just looking forward to not seeing any goat Tifi memes on Twitter anymore. <laughs> I think it's one of the worst jokes on F1. Twitter. Oh man. Also, I don't need to hear about Nutella anymore. Like it's you know, gosh. 
Yeah. It's like slightly thicker Hershey syrup. I don't understand it. Well, admittedly, he's the son of a billionaire and should be able to have all of the the abuse roll off of him while he rolls in $100 bills in his bathtub. I still have to feel bad that the fact that like, can you imagine your whole career being summed up in like the memification of like people calling you the greatest of all time purely for ironic reasons? I mean, that's got to be that's got to be pretty shitty. Nah. (laughs) This guy's already had a hundred times more interesting life than I've, you know, in 30 years than I'll have in 300. So no, I don't feel sorry for him at all. No, no sympathy for the pepperoni prince, huh? If, if, if he can't, if he doesn't have the emotional fortitude and character to withstand the level of internet abuse, quote unquote, that he's been subject to, that's pretty sad. Cyberbullying is bullying, Graham. Papa Latifi should have put him in the factory and built him a backbone when he was younger. That's what he should have done. Dude, he's, you you don't even know. He's been stuffing sausages since he was a wee (laughs) lad. Oh boy! All right. Well, anyway, I, I thought you should be held accountable. For, no, I for that. I appreciate that. that. I, I, I might honestly be more outrageous than my Haas fourth pick. I, it's up there. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, put your faith in the wrong. To man. be fair, if that is if that's what drove me to put Williams up in eighth place versus their distant tenth, you should yeah. be in jail. That's, that's true. That's crime again. The fact that he scored as many points as a person who participated in one race. No. It's, yeah, you know what it is. You think you, you you think you're like on the inside with Canadians since you went to the race in Montreal. That's what it is. I I yeah, I got a I had a little Canadian me. I got a soft spot for the French, I guess. I don't know where it comes from, but it's there and I think it it's like a cancer that I need to get excised, but <clears throat> moving on to 8th place. Again, you had Alpine all the way in 8th place. I had Williams then ninth place, you and I both had predicted Alfa Romeo, which again was largely consistent with the prior year. You thought Botas would be a difference maker. I'm not sure from what you thought dif- he would be a difference maker, <laughs> putting him in ninth place. And I basically said they would both be eh, fine. Um, but take credit to them. They significantly outperformed primarily on the back of Botas in early season but I think overall, and and you'll you'll probably think up differently as you have all season. But again, I thought from a rookie season standpoint, while nothing truly stood out, Joe seemed to have a oh, solid season, more consistent, less volatile, less damage than what you saw from the likes of of Sonoda, for example. So I mean, from a quote unquote being a paid driver, um, I think he did far better than than people would have expected. I was I was wondering how long it would take one of us to compare Zoe's rookie season to the only other Asian driver on the grid, but you got there pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> what What are you trying to say? <laughs> uh, um, well, technically Albon's Asian, so actually, no, never mind. I redact that. Um, what do you mean technically? He's Thai. There's no technicality about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, digging that hole. You know, technically, uh, <laughs> on a technicality, he's Thai. Yeah. Um, (laughs) no i i fully agree with you on joe though i credit where it's due um i wish he was getting a home grand prix next year i hate that china's doing such dumb things to themselves and still getting events canceled like that i think that beijing circuit's actually really really interesting it would have been cool for him to get a home race and kind of get to you know see the fruits of his labor a little bit with the following in china because that's largely been 
unseen by everyone that's become an F1 fan in the time frame I have. So, um, yeah. Meanwhile, I wish that track was located in another country and we could race it because love the track. Well, no love lost for not having the race there whatsoever. So yeah, agreed. I uh, yeah, that track deserves a better host country than China. I think. Yeah. So I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And meanwhile, while you thought he was one of the driest drivers on the grid, I think he I think he has effectively made a place for himself as the sort of second most fashion forward driver beyond Hamilton. So I think he's uh, yeah, he I think he dresses like yeah. dresses like a K-pop star. Ooh, I don't know. You're gonna start some. That's some cross-border some controversies there. I don't, know, I don't know if you want to make that illusion. How about we get on a plane and leave Asia, just maybe not go back for <laughs> yeah, a while. Let's go, back to the, let's go back west here. Uh, speaking of west, Williams finishing 10th. You correctly called them finishing last. And I believe your exact prognostication was Umbro are the sponsors. Nuff said. Uh, <laughs> well, correct. And I had Haas in the back saying Magnuson was an improvement, but... And they'd perform well early, but I was uh, far more pessimistic than than they deserved. I'm I'm ashamed by my lack of patriotism, so I apologize. Are you going to make up for that next season with a, now they've got an American driver in the lineup? You going to buy some Umbro swag? Oh hell yeah, dude! I'm all I'm all I'm gonna in on it. Umbro. Yeah, yeah, you're committed. I, it's you cheap. Want my ha- it's see, cheap. I thought you were going to ask me, am I going to be more committed to Haas now? What, but see, the color scheme of Williams, the aesthetic looks more American, you know, than Haas. So I think, I think it from a branding standpoint, I can get behind it. Well, it depends what side of the aisle you stand on. You're a little bit more blue. I'm a little bit more fan of the white and red. But uh, <laughs> you know. so, uh, I, however, I will be. Uh, I'll be supportive of Sergeant. Because of whatever misplaced allegiance I had to Schumacher for basically no reason whatsoever, um, I think I'll be a little bit more bitter towards Haas. I'm not sure. I'm. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm bought into the to the whole the whole the whole Hulkenberg change. Oh, I'm not either. I'm. Are you are you fully dead on it on the inside to Mick Schumacher though? Like, is that are you are you guys fully divorced? Have you guys already filed the paperwork? Uh, it's not official. I would say we're. It's a trial separation. So like if he remember, calls I'm, you and says, come visit Michael with me, you know, you going to go, you going to pay your respects. I'd pick up the phone. Let's leave it at that. I'd, I'd take the call. I don't know <laughs> if you would talk back. Oh, sorry. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> moving on. Uh, wow, that's tough to recover from. Not the only thing. Um, (laughs) Other discussion topics. Um, Moving on to ski season as a topic. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) All right, we're going to take this conversation back on piste. (laughs) It's probably for the best. It's uh, a little bit safer, (laughs) as some might might advise. Uh, Well, since we were on the topic of driver lineup changes... Let's let's move there before the even more exciting uh, principal silly season that we've all got to be experiencing over the last few weeks. Um, let's start with Haas, since we were already there. Uh, much expected, but unconfirmed until basically the very end of the season. Schumacher no longer at Haas. Hulkenberg will be coming back. The 
Haas team will now be the sort of team of geriatric has-beens, purely (laughs) for financial reasons, it seems. Schumacher let go due to basically three crashes, one in the race and one in practice and and two in practice and qualifying, causing uh, significantly more expenses from his damages than basically anybody else on the grid. And by and large, for most of the season, Haas was strapped for cash, claimed that they couldn't develop the car for that reason. Um, and so looking for a bit more stability, keeping Magnuson and going with Hulkenberg, what's what's your overall reaction? Do you think it was the right move? Do you think it was the right move, especially given the fact that they secured late season sponsors and presumably have more resources to absorb some some costs of doing business, which are repairs uh, from crashes and the like. Are you excited to see Hulk back on the grid? The only thing good to come out of this decision has been all of the uh, resurfacing suck my balls mate videos that have come back on Twitter when K-Mag and Hulk had it out in the paddock. Have you seen that? Have you seen that video? Yes. Uh, yeah. Honestly, I think this is like a zero sum trade. I think if anything, they lost out. I love your geriatric has comment. I mean, that's to me, they gain nothing except for maybe a few less crashes, but I, I still think Mick has better upside. I, I just, it's, it's a really boring pick. I mean, Hulkenberg just doesn't really do anything for me, but seems to be Gunther style, you know, now that he can afford more senior predictable drivers, that's what he opts for. seems to be kind of core to his philosophy. Honestly, I think he, it just seems like when they completely cleaned house and went all young drivers, he did it purely out of financial reasons. And it was like the antithesis of his management philosophy. And so I think he's just kind of reverting back now that he has the ability to, and Mick is just, you know, in the crosshairs, which is just how it goes, you know? Yeah. And I think with the, with the sponsorship money too, I mean, like I, I, while I was reluctant to think it was the right move purely from an intrigue perspective, right. You want to see kind of what a guy can do, how they develop. You kind of, whereas you know what you get with Hulkenberg, I think from a strategy perspective, if you were running that business, it makes sense, right? When you're strapped for cash, you need to finish races. You need to keep the car on the grid. Fine. So be it. But as they had more resources for more sponsorships, I would have thought that would have pushed the pushed the dial a bit more in Schumacher's favor, but it didn't. So he's uh, he's out, and we'll see what uh, – and now we'll get to see what Hulkenberg has coming back. And admittedly, uh, I do kind of wish – kind of wish the worst because um, I would have liked to see them stay with, with Schumacher. So time will tell. All right, the, big, the biggest move um, – for somebody not on the grid had to be Daniel Ricardo, not going to IndyCar as you predicted, but instead becoming Red Bulls, not even their third like reserve driver, but just their guy on the simulator. And then to drive the car as part of like promo activities. Wait, I thought he was their third driver. I don't think so. Like their reserve driver. I thought it was going to be like Lawson or somebody else. Like, I thought they were going to have somebody else, like, not, like, because he'll even say, like, no, I'm not going to be, like, on the track, really. He's, like, a sim guy and to do, like, promo events. That's at yeah, least what that's, I've, what I've that's seen. The role that, that's the role that Albon had last year, and he was their third driver if one of those guys had gone down. I saw that he was, like, not even kind of, like, the quote-unquote third driver, but more so there from, like, promotional reasons. Because he like genuinely wants to take a step back, right? And not even be like 
the week to week guy and and truly be able to like reset and you know recenter on himself and all of that. So well, I did a quick Google and the first three articles that I came up are by Sky Sports, ESPN, and ESPN, and all of them say that he's their third driver. So fake news. I don't. I don't know where you're getting your facts, man. Uh, the reason why I'm pushing back on this is because my whole argument for rationalizing what Daniel Ricardo did is based upon the potential that he gets lucky and stumbles into a race seat for one weekend this year. Uh, I don't think – look, I hear all the talking points about I'm trying to reset. You know, I'd like a year off. I'm getting paid my McLaren. I'm going to go fly fish in Montana. Good for you, buddy. Dude. If he wanted to live that way, he wouldn't be in the game. The reason why he's their third driver or their test driver is because he wants to stay in the game. And anybody that wants to stay in the game wants to race in the game. That guy is he his he is holding out hope that Checo or Max gets COVID. He stumbles into the best car in the grid that suits his driving style for one weekend a year and puts the world on notice that he was just in the wrong car at McLaren, but he's still the same guy. That, to me, is what he's trying to do. And I don't think it's actually impossible. Like, a scenario where Checo gets sick, loses his car for a weekend, Ricardo comes in and wins a race, is not impossible, given how good that Red Bull is. And maybe there is something to this The whole McLaren just made a wacky car and he just couldn't figure it out thing. You never know. It. I'm not saying it's probable. I think it's possible. Um, so, well, I've done a quick Google search myself. I'll have, you know, (laughs) and I found a source. Some might say it's even more reliable when it comes to F1 news. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called WTF1. Oh. (laughs) And it lists first and foremost, Liam Lawson as a Red Bull reserve driver. So while you might say third driver, I think the technical term of somebody who would replace another driver on track during a race weekend is reserve driver. But <clears throat> I don't know. Maybe I might be wrong. Huh. Oh, Katie wrote this. Eh. All right. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Katie. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, at least they're publishing things. That's good for them. Probably in a more yeah. timely fashion than... <laughs> Well, other entities yeah they don't they don't work for the man so good for them oh man all right let's uh so i think long story short though <laughs> too bad too bad too, i'm glad we got a cartoon artist to do our album art and we didn't just the two of us just didn't stand in front of a camera with a logoed sweatshirt just cheese just cheese dicking for like back to shoulder to shoulder <laughs> it would have been cheaper Well, let's be honest, our real faces are so unsavory. We need a cartoon (laughs) softening to make us acceptable. (laughs) Softening? What are you talking about? My chin's like three feet long. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's not even, let's not, we won't stop at the chin. Um, (laughs) All right. So in terms of Ricardo, though, do you think, um, so you think his decision was largely because he's still holding on hope of coming back, and the best way to do that is to stay as close to a top team as as possible. I think it's actually kind of smart, because if you look at what happened to DeVries this year, right, it takes one race. It literally just takes one race to change people's perception. And if he really believes that he just was in a car he couldn't sort, and he just needs to move on, I mean, 
moving back to a team where you know you were fast in a car that you know is currently fast and just gambling that you would get a seat one weekend. The other thing is he's going to put in a bunch of a bunch of practice um, lap times. So to me, it actually is a decent resume building strategy if he thinks he can kind of get back in good favor and maybe actually have another three or four years to his career and maybe be the top driver at another team one day. I don't think it's impossible. I think aside from COVID and appendicitis, though, it's there's not a lot of opportunities to actually get a seat in the car. And yeah, I think unfortunately, but I think unfortunately, the expectations would be so high given the car that he's in is he has to truly deliver. Whereas you look at a DeVries situation and you're like, oh my God, you got one point. You're a fucking legend. Like hugely outperformed any expectations. And there's just, there's not as much runway to outperform the car where he's sitting in now. And I guess as a team principal, I would wonder is seeing him in the best car on the grid really give me that much more confidence that he as the driver can perform versus the potential of a young driver to come in and, and further develop. I, I I think the biggest problem for him was he was just not willing to take a seat in the bottom half of the grid. Sure, you want to say that drivers come back and join. Well, where do they come back to? Haas. He could have had that seat. He didn't want that seat. What seat is he going to have going forward on Red Bull, Ferrari, Mercedes, Alpine, McLaren, Alphatari? I mean, maybe he gets an Alphatari seat because Sonoda shits the bed. May- yeah, maybe he replaces Alonso when he retires at Aston. I mean, I, there's, you know, there's. If he comes in and has a great year, maybe gets a seat and, you know, does something kind of wild with a very short opportunity at Red Bull, he, he would be a. It's just that, yeah, sure. I guess you're arguing like he could have gone and raced at Haas and it would have been a route, basically. If his best destination is to eventually get back into the midfield. Why not be on the car week to week? Why not be in the car? I get, okay, I get that. I think maybe he's still shooting higher and believes that maybe he, maybe he thinks he can replace Checo. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, Checo's only got two more years on his contract. Like, you think Christian Horner wouldn't be tempted by, I mean, think about it. Christian Horner is, I'm saying this as a huge Checo fan. So like, don't, don't hear me as like some Ricardo Hawk here. I'm just really kind of playing this side. Of the I argument. mean, after your season prediction, I, nobody's going to be mistake you for that. Yeah. But I'm just saying like, okay, so let's just pretend that Checo falls ill before, uh, Baku. I don't know. And Ricardo literally comes in and wins the race and, or is on Max's ass one, two within five seconds of him. And then Checo gets back and has a lackluster season. Maybe he doesn't finish top three in the driver's championship. You don't think Christian Horner would look at that and then knowing all of Daniel Ricciardo's practice times and think to himself, huh, I could probably get Ricciardo on the cheap. Maybe I should buy out the last year of Checo's contract. By this point, Mercedes is going to be on their ass, if not ahead of them. And he's going to be probably under more pressure to construct an equally talented driver lineup, and maybe they're going to view Checo as a liability. I don't know. I'm just painting out scenarios. I don't think that that is impossible. It is not impossible. It is a very low probability because I think you look at, I think you look at short-term up. If there was a short-term need, you probably end up going with DeVries, assuming he delivers a long-term need. You have the likes of, of Norris that you could see in 
that they'd rather have in Red Bull to replace Checo than than Ricardo. It just seems like he is very far down the the menu. But to your point, I think at least puts him in the mix where he probably wouldn't have been before. I guess I'm just still not convinced that he's more in that mix because he's doing promotional events and sitting in the simulator than if he was actually on track and performing well. Fair enough. Uh, but Time will to tell. be clear, I think your version of the future is much more likely. I don't disagree. Well, look, you're the you're the moonshot guy. So, uh, and look, you, you nailed the you nailed the uh, the outlier scenario. So, look, you're probably we'll revisit this in a year, and maybe you'll be right. All right, let's move on. Looking uh, further down the grid, Logan Sargent, U.S. driver, locked up a seat at Williams. How excited are you to have an American on the grid? You were if you were if you were to actually put up any prediction you had this season, this was another one that you put out there of an, an American driver needing to be on the grid. And your wish was gonna be Herta. Well, well, you know. Clearly the F two bias is is real. Yeah, Logan Sargent was an unknown quantity for at least for me, uh, at the beginning of the season. So I, I thought it was gonna be Herta. The super license thing got in his way, otherwise I think it probably could have been him. So Logan Sargent kind of comes up through the right development league at the right time. And, you know, definitely wasn't the fastest guy in F2, but he was relatively consistent and won some races. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's – he'll live and die by whether he can keep up with Albon, I think, at the end of the day. I don't think Williams has any dreams of grandeur where he's going to be scoring in the points. But, um, yeah, it'll be exciting. It's still a little bit, like, bittersweet because I just – I know that he's not going to be competitive, you know, um, but I guess it's better than nothing. Yeah. You're purely looking out for those like random race anomalies where, where they outperform. But I mean, look, if he haven't has a chance to be within half a second of Albon in qualifying and he isn't sitting in last place every single race by, you know, a wide margin, I, I count that as a win. All right, let's move into the more exciting uh, principal silly season starting at the top of the grid Bonato at Ferrari is out and Vassar from Alfa Romeo is now the new team principal you think that was the right move what's your overall reactions to were you honestly expecting that at the conclusion of the season well I mean i I don't think it really matters what I thought. You nailed this. I don't remember how many weeks out before the end of the season. It might have been the summer break where you were like, Bonato should probably be fired. And you called it pretty early. Um, so, credit to you. Uh, I think it was absolutely deserved. I mean, we talked about this a lot towards the end of the year. I mean, I think the book was shut on him six races left in the year, just how many times they fucked strategy. I mean, it was just... I, I, I kind of felt that way, honestly, and like, Maybe not Monaco. I think you might have felt that way as early as Monaco. I think I probably shut the book on it maybe like, I don't know, four or five weeks later. But to me, the team management, the mismanagement of the team and the culture of decision-making are just so blatantly off. You 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 have no choice but to to hire somebody from the outside. Although, I don't know, is Besser really from the outside? Like, ah. Well, he is French, so, I mean... That's true. I guess that's true. He's not Italian. That's the, so. That's, right. I mean, that's as that's as outside as matters as far yeah, as that's, that's concerned. That's true. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and and I don't recall exactly when it was, to be honest, but I appreciate the uh, the recognition. But um, but to me, it was the point at which he comes out and says, he said, "We're not fighting for a championship this year." You had three y- three years to develop a car. You're not going to get three years ever again, and you couldn't deliver. You almost did. It looked like you might have, but you didn't. So that was the the turning point for me. But then to your point, while the technicals might not have been there and you couldn't fully put fault on them, the team management and the the operations as a team principal, if you're not delivering on that, that is on you. And you hear all, it was yeah. horrible. I mean, it's hideous for a top. I mean, even even Alpine, who who had a lot of mechanical failures, they were engine related. And, you know, there's avenues by which that's acceptable because that gives you the opportunity to further develop the engine, right? So it's a little bit of a loophole in the rules, whereas just strategy fuck-ups and pit stop mistakes, you just look like a clown. And and no team in the top five or six or seven or on the grid did as poorly as often in those domains as as Ferrari. So it was the right move. We'll see if anything's better. We'll see if, if Vassar can actually make changes. I mean, I don't know if you can. I don't know how much ingrained organizational psychology is. I don't know how much sort of micromanagement of like the Ferrari executives are in the team, but we'll see if he's able to kind of have a more well-run operation. Do you think that Vassar was their first choice? I mean, I think we know he wasn't. I think we know they would have liked other people to come in, but... I mean, there was hints of, oh, does does this person or that corner come over there? And they're like, well, why? That was ne- that was probably never a realistic option. Who would want to go and deal with that versus you know that organizational culture versus where they're already at? What does it say about them that Seidel went to Alfa Alfa Romeo Salba over Ferrari? Now I get that being CEO is a promotion, I suppose. Uh, but I mean, that's what that's what it was for me. I think uh, I think. He would have probably been a good pick, but I think he probably liked the idea. And I and from what I gather, Vassar was sort of out anyway. So I honestly think they didn't get the first couple they wanted. Alfa Romeo wanted Seidel more so from a Audi perspective. And so Vassar was sort of sitting there like, oh, I might not be here in a couple of years. Ferrari needs somebody and we already have a relationship so admittedly, I think he was sort of like the the default option after everyone else was was gone. And again, I think that's a testament to probably the broader organizational culture of people aren't clamoring to go there. They don't see it as as a as a place where they can make their unique mark. You go there because now you get to wear a Ferrari shirt and being associated with this entity as the prestige versus Seidel's looking at it saying, I have a chance to create something here and build something. And, and that's exciting. Plus it, it you're hundred percent right. It's more of a promotional thing for him. So I, I don't think that was ever even in the Ferrari would have ever been able to exceed that, that opportunity. I'm sure Audi probably doubled his salary. I don't know. Oh, it's, it's got to be pretty nice. And now, because, like, I mean, he's basically at, at Zach's level, right? Yeah. At McLaren. So, oh, yeah. I mean, he's his he's his peer now. So, I mean, that's got to feel, he's moving up. So, it's got to feel good for him. And and well-deserved. I mean, while the season was a little bit of a disappointment, I mean, they've consistently performed 
very, very well. Um, maybe questionable driver selection uh, previously, but uh, at least on their last selection. So if he got it, I mean, he got it wrong, but so did everybody else, you know? So it's like, it's hard to fault him for it. He couldn't have really seen it coming. Meanwhile, you got to see a little bit of a cutthroat nature. I mean, he went out and got Piastri for the team before he left. So on that hand, he, he, he made amends one would think, but well, time will tell on be, that one. That, that could have been a, that could have been a daddy Zach move more than anything. Mm, so that's true. That is true. Yeah. Um, well, I think by and large, we've covered off Ferrari, uh, Alfa Romeo, and and McLaren changes. I mean, meanwhile, McLaren, uh, it, it, as far as I gather, it's up in the air in terms of who they have filling, um, filling their places. So, you mean McLaren or Williams? McLaren already named. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. Williams. The only one where there's gaps now is Williams, who have let go both um, Capito. Um, as well as their technical director, um, both spots unfilled at the moment. So they've kind of cleared house. Yeah. They swept the kitchen floor, which Uh, do you think that's the right move? Or is that just sort of like the classic mistake of, of PE investors of, well, you didn't hit your 12 month target. So you're fired. Well, that's the theory is that Doralton basically is going to is going to spin out the Williams investment earlier than they thought because the valuation has gone up way quicker than they thought hmm. based on the growing popularity of the just sport. Just purely so from just, the momentum of F1 overall. Yeah, so, so they're basically just like getting rid of all their non-appreciating assets and building up cash, you know, basically preparing for the sale uh, to make it a more, you know, financial acquisition opportunity for the next buyer. Um, but... Who knows? They could also be just really short-sighted and think that this is the best thing for the actual future performance of the team. I find that hard to believe. Yos Capito is very well thought of, and I think in general was viewed as somebody that could largely turn Williams around. Um, I know they were last on the grid, but they were still, I think, better than last year. I mean, not by a lot, but they were still better. Definitely in terms of total driver lineup, and then also they scored more points. So, I mean, it's not like they were going backwards. Well, to have the most underperforming driver on the grid, you could put a lot in yeah. that, right? Where Playing with a hand I mean, to lose a driver, the principal, the technical director, all in one, like that's a lot of change. I'm just surprised if they were to do that. You, I mean, so what? You would sell without those positions filled and allow the new buyer to fill them? Like, is that the is that the thinking? Yeah. Does Andretti come in via that route and take yeah, I mean, over you just, Williams and let were... them make the decision? Like, hey, I'd, it'd be better to have a blank slate. But I, I guess I would see it as like you've just introduced all of this uncertainty to whoever your buyer is rather than some level of stability that then they can choose to change or not. Yeah. It's, it's just fair. an interesting take. If you didn't have a plan to fill them, why would you fire them? Like, it doesn't seem right for you. Just be like, I don't know, well, we're just going to get radio and we'll figure it out later. Or, hey, we have this thing, you want to buy it? Oh, yeah, and we just fired all the leadership. So yeah. it, it seems like an odd decision. And that's why I default to, it seems just like a little bit of that, like comfort in PE firms of, ah, let's just fire them and bring in new blood and we'll, you know, we'll headhunt somebody. See what happens. Yeah. yeah. And we'll see. It'll be interesting. Lots of changes, both drivers, both princip- and principals as well. Well, with that, Graham, I think we've largely recapped the race, but more importantly, the season as a whole. And with that, I think it's important that 
um, we look back more so personally, personal accountability as this being our, our first and to date only season that we've put out from a podcast. And before we go into like podcast operations, I think, I think while we've had all of these episodes, 23 of them in total, there have been ample opportunities for us to stick our foot in our mouths and make fools of ourselves. And I just think we should maybe start with maybe some apologies to the audience. I mean, what do you, how would you speak to yourself and, and, and the performance and the way that you've carried yourself this season? Uh, I mean, first and foremost, I'd like to apologize to Jack Wolf. Uh, I never <laughs> meant anything. <laughs> I never, I never meant anything by it. Uh, I think after this podcast, I'm going to need to apologize to the entire Schumacher family. Uh, I think at various points in time, God, what other stupid things did I say? Um, how about for your general disdain of the French? No, never would never apologize for that. Absolutely not. I'd never apologize for any nation bias that I have in my view of drivers. Um, I don't apologize for anything I've said about Latifi. Um, I think you should apologize for how you've talked about George Russell, frankly. What was wrong with how I talked about Russell? I don't know. You just seem to think he's a complete prick, and I just don't understand where it comes from. I think I think that I think that Instagram speaks for itself. I mean, how many shirtless photos does a man need to take? I mean, the Instagram is definitely pretty self-absorbed, but I mean, there's far worse out there. He's a handsome guy. Um, I disagree. I mean, he little he looks a little like Slenderman, but that you know, we'll put that aside. <laughs> I was going to go with the grasshopper from Bugs Life, but <laughs> a little more jovial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wouldn't say he's creepy. He's more animated. Um, yeah. Ocon's like Slenderman. Mm, you, you would say that. Um, you know, from my perspective, look, I apologize for absolutely nothing. I have no shame. And if, if I'm ever wrong, it's only temporary until I have an enhanced and slightly more accurate take. So you, what you should apologize for is your biweekly metallic synthesizer that you've got in, installed in okay. your microphone. Okay. That's, okay. that's what you should apologize for. I will apologize for. for my general lack of technical acumen, my Literally technology acumen. Not um, knowing which fucking switch to flip on the front of his microphone, sounding like freaking Little Mermaid for like half the episode. That has been a regular struggle with direct implications to the listening audience. And for that, I apologize. And that and my my expectations that Latifi and Williams would do better. I apologize. Well, with that, Graham, we've said our favorite. What was your favorite episode from this year? I think my favorite episode had to be, well, no, okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was originally going to say my favorite was the Montreal episode because I went. Um, it was a, it was an awesome time. And I felt like I just had really epic rants. You know, being on the ground, I was able to generate a lot of very like intimate content. I was able to add some value with the, the advice for the experience only the slight detraction was the absolutely poor audio quality. So, but then the immediate episode that jumped into my mind after the fact was, was Monza. Uh, I think 
as much because it was massively hilarious as much as the fact that you had to suffer through that whole experience, which leading up to that, I was like feeling regrettable about missing and how excited you were. So I think it was your suffering that turned into comedy that made that my favorite episode of the season. How about you? I liked, I'm trying to remember as we go back through these. I think that the, uh, yeah, the Monza episode was a lot of fun. I'm trying to recall. I never laughed so hard as in that episode. Just your retelling of <laughs> the entire experience was absurd. Yeah. Honestly, I, 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 the first one was, is always going to be super memorable just because I don't know. It's not like we're any good now, but like we were terrible. Uh, when you go back and listen to Bahrain, like combine the auto equality with just like the, you know, we were like, first we're going to talk about the race and then we're going to move on. We were like, it was like we were holding like a project management meeting. I mean, it was just like, Oh my God, like these guys literally haven't been outside of a team's call in like five years. (laughs) It was, it was, yeah. So I, you know, I, um, I feel like over the season we've gotten a little bit looser, uh, and started to started to find threads of conflict and controversy, which I think can make the conversation flow nicer. So yeah, I've enjoyed that. Um, the booze helped too. The booze was a big factor. Yeah, we started, we started we started drinking like episode eight, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if you haven't which started, nice. if you haven't watched, listened to the older ones. Maybe start about there. That's that's where we really started to hit our stride. Maybe skip over the first four because one during one of those I talked about Jack Wolf and I don't think it's been scrubbed yet. So just maybe that was epi- skip that, those. that was episode one. Uh, if oh. if we lost any viewer, <laughs> if we had any viewers on episode one, we lost at least half of them uh, at that point. Yeah, that was in your your drive to survive recap. So a lot's happened over the year, man. It's also the just the general reflection of how long the F one season is and how much life you live from start to finish, like. Think about where we were when we started this thing. We worked at the same company. We saw each other regularly in the same city. And now you're on the other side of the country. I hardly see you now. Honestly, if it weren't for this podcast, I may have never talked to you again. Yeah. That, it seemed like that. That's. I mean, I generally didn't value anything about our friendship, you know, outside of it. So, it, yeah, I think it probably. No, yeah, this was the only thread that. that out. This was the only thread that binded us together. So, uh yeah, I think we were both looking forward to the end of the season to have a reprieve from one another. But, uh, you know, we, we had this oblig- last obligation to to bring us back. Well, with that, uh, yes. No, go ahead. You're about to move us on. I was just going to say, um, it seems as though we've started our final segment uh, prematurely, which was uh, bringing it home with a little bit of a Christmas roast, if you will. And we're not talking, we're not talking about a, a pheasant or a duck, but the roast of one another. Um, and in professional settings, we were also well known for our roasts, um, of our peers who, who moved on to bigger and better roles. And in some cases, not always better equivalent or worse roles. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but now it's our time to roast one another in our performances on this season. And as the the original roast master himself. I'd love to turn over the floor to you to say a few not so kind words about me. Oh man. I feel woefully underprepared to do this. Uh, well, shit, man. I didn't, I I didn't, I didn't script this out at all. (laughs) 
<laughs> which I'm, a, I'm s- but you never really scripted out any of your roasts, right? So, I mean, I at least thought about them in advance. <laughs> Meanwhile, I spent half my day on this on this bit. I saw you. I had was a, gonna say. I, I, I saw you had a couple of notes in there. I thought, oh man, I got better. I got to step it up here. Um, what can I say about you? As just a, let as it a let it come from the heart, Graham. I mean, I, look, I think you know, three years from now, when this podcast has ten thousand, you know average daily downloads and we're monetizing. I, I think that you and I are going to have a contentious business relationship. I can see us communicating through lawyers frequently, but we're going to be <laughs> so famous and profitable that we can't sever our relationship. So it's going to be a tough situation. Um, I think you'll hold a lot of things personally. I think you're going to have very poor financial accountability for the firm. I think I'll regret giving you a corporate card um, <laughs> in general. Um yeah, am I scared that I'm going to show up later in the season? You're going to be a better skier than me. I not at all, actually, not at all. Uh, I've got a brand new pair of black crows sitting on the bed, calling my name right now, and uh, I don't think we have to really excuse ourselves at all. So you hold on to that one, Graham. How about um, I'm surprised this wasn't in here. My my general lack of independence when it comes to decision making about um, it's oh god <laughs> the art the artwork god jeez. <laughs> I mean, it was like, he, oh my gosh, the <laughs> Gerald found this freaking guy on Reddit, this cartoon artist on Reddit to do the album art. Quick plug, WJ Apple, Reddit, Apple Dorn Art. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. the phenomenal artwork. Yeah, let's be clear. None of this was about, none of this was about him. He did a phenomenal job, but Gerald basically like tried to have like a complex institutional contract negotiation with a Reddit artist (laughs) and asked for like protections in the legal language about the terms of use that we could sever our obligations to credit the artist if he goes crazy and starts producing politically charged and like anti-governmental content. Racist content. I don't know what he's doing. Yeah, so Gerald basically proposes this over email, and the artist is so insulted, he's like, fuck you guys, I don't need to work with you. And so Gerald basically texts me every day and forwarding me emails about, like, how would you respond? Like, inviting me to micromanage situation. I'm just sitting there the entire time thinking, dude, I don't give a shit. Like, literally just get some artwork made. Like, it's just so simple. Like, draw it on a piece of paper yourself at this point. I can't believe you asked him for a freaking out in the in the accreditation clause if he if he becomes racist essentially <laughs> is what you asked for. <laughs> to be clear, you did not run that idea behind me before you responded to that email. Well, that's there why I no- felt like there was a need to you know, a greater oversight in the process. I had clearly Honestly- the fact that you even read the contract is crazy. Oh, I fucking went I, through that shit with a fine tooth comb. Oh man, I bet you had outside counsel engaged, <laughs> I, dude. The fact that you even read the contract for a five hundred dollar art commission <laughs> is crazy. <laughs> the fact that he even had a contract is kind of crazy. But like, I yeah. Well, in retrospect, Thank you for teeing that up. <laughs> the contract was, I think, more of like a, a standard artist contract. And so I don't think I'm fair enough to say I did not properly put into context the nature of our negotiation, that, that this was not some sort of multi-million dollar, multi-year business tie-up that we needed sort of out clauses. Dude. 
So I, I may have been a little bit over and You sound like you're testifying before con- Congress right now. I did not intend, I did not accurately describe the nature of our negotiations. <laughs> I, I think I was a little overbearing at uh, when we got in negotiations. So. You don't say. Yeah, dude, this poor guy downloaded a stock contract off of fucking LegalZoom and tried to use that, and you just go in there and rip it to shreds. William thought I was just gonna let him buy, let him buy with some fucking loosey goosey clauses. You're like, dude, there are no Oxford commas. I am not signing this shit. Like, <laughs> what is this trash? Well, I think unfortunately it was because in at work at that time I was in the process of reading through like hundred million dollar contracts with like major partners that we have, and so I was like in fifty page contracts with all these terms, and I was like, oh, that seems like a reasonable term to include in a contract. <laughs> It's like, dude, it's trying to get paid in three weeks, and I'm fucking dragging this out. <laughs> Just dragging him down in doc review. It's uh, like, come on, man. So, apologies, William. Appledorn Art, phenomenal partner, phenomenal Redditor, great F1 artist, and artist overall. Characters are phenomenal. Couldn't ask for a better partner. Fault totally on me. What, would we like to apologize to Kanye for not paying royalties on any of his music all season? I would have said Kanye had bigger problems at the start of the year. The dude is not giving a <laughs> fuck about this. <laughs> Sorry, I don't think we're his target demographic at the moment. So I think we're clear. We're, I think we're in the clear. I think we should take the money that we would have spent on royalties and just donate them to the Jewish History Museum in New York. Yeah, the Anti-Defamation League will uh, <laughs> contribute there. <laughs> All right. All right. Your turn. All right. You've you've clearly got some content prepared, so I'm going to go on mute. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, Graham, as much of a privilege as it has been working with you over the last year, I I, I think there are some, there is some things to call about you. Uh, First off, you are, much to my surprise, fervently nationalistic. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, you're, you're in fact so happy to see the, the traditional foundation and roots of the sport be torn down as long as it means that America gets a larger and more central stage in the F1 world. Um, and inversely, you're so offensive and discriminatory against other nations. I mean, really not other nations, more so just one in particular. And, um, you know, for all of your sort of orange man bad philosophies you so clearly seem to resemble some of the the man you so deeply despise insofar as the fact that your favorite color is even orange so i i find that to be a sweet irony um uh, meanwhile right. <laughs> <laughs> no no let me continue um you, you know in fact you're so easily baited into the latest sort of like colorful gimmick i.e sprint races that you're happy to to sell the the true sort of quality of the sport as it, as long as it entails some sort of superficial excitement. You're like some sort of child at a, at a carnival in wonder of all the pretty lights and the getting a stuffed prize animal, even if you made cheaply by some child in China. Is that it? Is that all you got? Oh, no. You still no, got no. And, How uh, okay. <laughs> well, I got only a couple of more. Um, and, you know, admittedly, I'm not sure whether it's your your southern accent or your southern education, but 
Um, okay, I was, now. I was, uh, uh, painfully disappointed by your lack of ability to pronounce, pronounce, Jesus Christ, irony, um, pronounce words. <laughs> You're right, it's so my pronunciation, you fucking hillbilly. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I don't think you get to finish that joke. Come on, come on. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Mainly it was your inability to pronounce the word. What was it? Constantina? Did you? <laughs> Constantine, Constantina. You know, I've been to Turkey. Whatever. <laughs> I, oh, I, God. Did and, you Did you get this roast from ChatGPT? No, I missed that. You don't even know what ChatGPT is. No, okay. I, I right, don't. Keep going. Oh, damn. Sorry. And, and I guess lastly... Um, most notably, your just general abrasiveness from your voice to the to your perspectives and really to just your overall being. Um, oh, wait, shit. Were these supposed to be jokes? I, I, uh, I, I'm not going to apologize for the last one. I, I, I embrace abrasiveness. I, we're fully aware, Graham. You've, you've never been shy about that fact. I'm going to introduce you to chat GPT by asking chat GPT why Gerald is not good at roasting. Ah, chat GPT says they don't have any information about you or your skills. Why are some people not good at telling jokes? There are some many reasons why some people are not good at telling jokes. Some possible reasons include, this is artificial intelligence telling you, Gerald, lack of comedic timing. This refers to the way a joke is delivered, including the pause before the punchline and the tone of the voice used. Lack of comedic material. Not everyone is naturally funny uh, or has a naturally humorous outlook on life. Number three, difficulty with impro- improv- improvisation. Telling jokes often requires quick thinking and the ability to improvise in response to an audience's reactions. Four, social anxiety or self-consciousness. Oh, that's a big one. Some people may struggle with telling jokes because they are anxious. Lack of confidence is number five, similar uh, yeah. to social anxiety. Yeah. Damn. Does ChatGPT know you well, Gerald? Fucking nailed it. <laughs> and, by arti- Seriously, no. and by artificial intelligence, you mean you just came up with those things, right? Ooh, butunch. Get it? Artificial. No. It's not... Uh. All right. I think you just proved the point. I, uh, (laughs) speaking of comedic timing, uh, I, have you, seriously, have you seen ChatGPT? Like, literally, I just chatted that to a chatbot and it returned a five bullet point framework answer instantaneously. Is that how you build most of your memos now? Honestly, it, it makes consultants obsolete. Literally, ask it for like a general management framework and it will return to you. It's like you you increase profitability. Well, one way you could do that is by introducing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How can companies. Let's okay. Think of a formula one question. We should ask it. It can't be forward looking. Think of a, think of some type of question about formula one. You're curious about. What's better in a formula one car oversteer or understeer. Okay. We can edit all this out, right? <laughs> I don't know. This answer might be pretty interesting. If it nails this, this is going to be impressive. Really pushing the bounds here of new technologies. 
In a Formula One car, it is generally better to have a neutral steering balance, which oh. means that the car is neither oversteering or understeering. Oversteer and understeer are both undesirable handling characteristics that can affect a car's performance. Oversteer occurs when the rear wheels of the car lose traction and the car begins to slide or spin out. This can happen when the car is cornering at high speeds or when the driver applies too much throttle. Oversteer can be difficult to control and can lead to accidents. Understeer, also known as push, occurs when the front wheels of the car lose traction and the car does not turn as sharply as the driver intends. This can happen when the car is cornering at high speeds or when the driver applies too much brake. Understeer can also be difficult to control. A neutral steering balance is when a car responds predictably. Uh, this allows the driver to have more control and confidence in the car's handling. That is pretty impressive. I feel like they just, what's the citation on that? I feel like they got that level there aren't. of insight and intrigue from WTF1. Yeah, but no, yeah, no doubt. But it's just crazy how quickly it synthesizes. it. Crazy days. We're living in the future. Thank you for the roast. You did a lovely job. Yeah, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Give me your condescension. Um, what, what else we got on the agenda? What, what's, what's in part four? Am I going to fly to Denver? You're going to jerk me off? Is that, is that what we're going to do next? That <laughs> yeah, wouldn't be worth the flight. Um, <laughs> nah, man, at this point, it's the off season. We hit the ski slopes. That's what's next on deck. Yeah, I, I can't wait. We can have some nice time away. We'll be back in February for winter testing. Well, I'm sure we'll have a ton of news to cover by then. And uh, hopefully some good stories from some nice powder days as well. So does that mean we're going to record from Whistler? Oh, that's right. Winter testing is President's Day weekend, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, maybe, maybe the maybe like midweek afterwards might make sense. Let's be honest. We're gonna be beat. No time for this. Uh, yeah, this shenanigans. We got real work to do. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I look forward to it, man. Well, we'll see. It's you been on a the pleasure, other, buddy. Assuming we both survive. See you on the other side. Looking forward to it. Peace. Peace.